few weeks now. I missed the last two shows. Susan did some terrific shows with some terrific guests, and you know what? We've got another great guest tonight, and I'm really excited. Susan is away and couldn't be here, but uh, she's very happy that our guest is going to be here tonight because, as you know, our guests make our show. I always say that, and this is true. It is not us. It is the, it is the guest. I think the, I think the best thing we do is we're good at you know, persuading people to come on. And Mary Romney's uh, so glad to have you on. Mary Romney is, is lives in Wilmanic. And, um, oh, she's active in the local NAACP. I think she's an officer in the NAACP. No, she's, but she's a member, an active member. And uh, anyway, she's also a, a teacher and an author. And uh, she's got a father, had, or had a father. He's deceased now, but with an incredibly interesting life. And she's written uh, a book about a, a, a big part of his life, uh, a really, a really a striking part of his life. And uh, she's here to talk uh, mostly about her dad and about uh, his life that started in 1912. He was born that's a year right. after my dad was born. Uh-huh. So, you know, that's a long time ago. Absolutely. And, <laughs> yeah, <Yes>. anyway. <laughs> so anyway, great to have you on the show, uh, Mary. You. And um, Thank you. I know you have uh, several degrees and you, you've taught. Now, one of the things you've done is you've taught... Uh, People who um, you've you've taught people who, who need English, uh, who need English as a, as a as a first language. As a second language. As a, you need for all right, English is a second language. Right. For for quite a long time. Yes, I I retired a few years ago after more than forty years of teaching English to speakers of other languages. I started doing that in Spain, uh, in the seventies, and then um, well here in Connecticut. I, I did it for um, almost 30 years, I guess, uh, let me see, around over 25 years I, I did it here in Connecticut, uh, starting out at Quinnebog Valley Community College, which is an absolutely wonderful institution that I, I still admire very, very much. And um, I, I also taught at um, UConn for 12 years. I was at Quinnebog for um, 15 or 16 years, and then at UConn for 12 years and at Capital Community College for about four years. And um, I have to say, I, I really um, I enjoyed it very, very much. I have nothing but admiration for my students. And I, I really admire, I admire anybody who is uh, courageous enough to try to learn another language. It's, it's quite a challenge. Um, English is a quite difficult language to learn. And all of my students were adults. So it was even more challenging for them, but I, I really uh, admired them. I, I, I love the profession, and I'm still active in the profession, actually. Yeah. Fantastic, and, and uh, you're also an author, and you've written several books. Um, I, I, I've written um, one book other than this one, and I've edited uh, another book. So um, I have a, a little bit of authorship in hmm. my uh, Several is uh, an interesting word. I think I think it's more than one. And I know I, I'm a, as I told you before, I'm a big Bob Dylan fan, and Bob Bob Dylan plays with words all the time. Yeah. You know, John Wesley Harding traveled through the West with a gun in every hand, every hand, not just both hands. Right. So you know, it's it's a uh, you know I anyway. You've written more than one book. Yes. Anyway, and this this is a book that you wrote because of your the, your father had a really interesting life. Yes, he did. And and uh, it's amazing. I mean, it's spellbinding. And you 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 uh, you wrote a book about about his his life and especially about a certain thing that happened to him when he was younger. Yes, um, 
My book is about his wartime experience in World War II. He was one of the few black people um, who survived the Nazi concentration camp system, and um, that, that's what I wrote about. Um, I recorded uh, some oral history with my father talking about that experience, and that is the centerpiece of the book that I wrote. Okay, well, I, I've, I, you know, I got the book to you, from you today. I've had a really busy week, and I, uh, we met uh, all around noontime today, and you dropped off a copy of the book. I had ordered a copy from Amazon, which was supposed to be here today, and didn't come here. It didn't come yet. And so I asked Mary to give me a copy of the book. She offered to give me a copy earlier in the week, and I said, oh, no. I said, I, I don't know if I'll have time to read it, you know, but and I, I always like to, as, as our listeners know, I always like to be prepared. Absolutely. And so, and so I got a copy of the book uh, at noon, and I don't think I put it down but a couple of times to, uh, this afternoon uh, going through it. And I probably read through about half of it. It's about a 160, 170-page book. And it's, it's uh, you know, the, you, you write a lot about, you know, about his experience in a, a Nazi concentration camp, which is kind of shocking uh, to, you know just to talk just to mention that but but uh i i think his life was incredibly uh interesting and and uh you know you might want to talk a little bit about it starting with you know day one i'd say his you know where he was <laughs> born and, he, and whatnot he was from the dutch side of the caribbean island of saint martin and um he he lived also on the islands of aruba and curacao which are also uh, still Dutch islands. Uh, they're in the Southern Caribbean. St. Martin is in the Northern Caribbean, very close to Puerto Rico. And um, he, he also lived in Venezuela. And um, he, he became a merchant sailor um, sometime around the early to mid 1930s. And uh, in um, let me see. He was a merchant sailor from around the, the mid-1930s until 1940. And in June 1940, he was on a, a merchant ship. It was a Greek merchant ship, and it was sailing from uh, Cardiff in Wales on its way to Greece. So, of course, it was sailing through the Mediterranean. And when it reached the point between uh, Tunisia in North Africa, and Sicily, in Italy, um, that ship, my father's merchant ship, struck a floating mine. And of course, a mine is a type of a bomb. And when it struck the mine, it sank. But the crew of my father's ship was rescued by um, a ship from the Italian Navy. And at that point, my father became a political prisoner in Italy. So. For the next four years, he was transferred through a series of internment camps in Italy until 1944, when he was deported from the part of Italy that, it's called Modena, the, the, the province is called Modena. And it's uh, kind of in, in the, 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 northern, the, the, the northern area of, of Italy. The, the region is called Emilia-Romagna and the province is called Modena. So he was, he was transferred, he was deported from there to the Mauthausen concentration camp in Austria, and he spent the final year of the war there at that camp. I'm going to stop you there because I want to get into some of the details of his, mm -hmm. of his journey to uh, Mauthausen. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, the, the, 
Okay, we talked about a book. The book is called An Afro-Caribbean in the Nazi Era. Mm -hmm. And the subtitle is from... Papiamentu. Papiamentu, just like like it's spelled. From Papiamentu to German. Mm -hmm. And Papiamentu apparently is a language. Yes, it is. Descended from the Latin. Yes. um, In part, anyway. Papiamentu is a Spanish and Portuguese-based Creole that is spoken on the islands of Aruba, Curaçao, and Bonaire in the Southern Caribbean. Um, but a lot of people in the Dutch Caribbean speak Papiamentu, even, uh, even if they're not from one of those islands. But I think that Papiamentu originated in, in Curaçao. Yeah. Okay, I've got a copy of the book right here for those of you who are watching on radio. And uh, the book is available. Uh, where is it available? It's available on Amazon. It's, yeah, I, yeah. I, okay, just Amazon. Is only it? Amazon. All right, only Amazon. Okay, well, that's, I did the right thing then. Absolutely. My wife's always telling me not to not to order things from Amazon, but buy local dentist, she says, and she's right. But I did order the book from Amazon, so I did the right thing. You did. Only except I, it didn't it didn't arrive in time, but I was able to get a copy from Mary today, and uh, so glad I did because I, I it made my afternoon very unusually enjoyable. <laughs> and and uh, I just wanted to go back a little bit to his, you know, I, I from what I understand, he played cricket. Yeah. In, in, on the on, you know back in the islands, and he lived on several of the islands for um, for small periods of time. Yeah, yeah, he he did play cricket. It was it's still popular um, in the Caribbean, mostly in the Anglophone Caribbean. Sure. Or, uh, I'll say that the 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 British, the, the present and former British colonies of the Caribbean. Right. But um, um, yeah, it's 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 still popular. A lot of the people in his generation played cricket. Yeah. But he spends an awful lot of time trying to earn a living in various ways. Yes, he did. He did. Um, at that period in history, um, the uh, economies of those small islands in the Caribbean uh, were also very small. Those economies were very small. So a lot of people had to emigrate. My father's parents emigrated. They, um, well, I won't say they emigrated, but they did work in um, the Dominican Republic for several years, um, they worked the sugarcane harvest. A lot of people uh, from St. Martin did that in those days. Some of them went to Cuba to work there for the same reasons, or maybe to, to harvest the tobacco. But, you know, they, th- there was a lot of movement, a lot of migration around the Caribbean, uh, people from smaller islands um, going to the larger islands for work. Later on, um, my, my father, people in my father's generation went to Aruba and Curaçao looking for work because of the oil refineries there. My father did that for a while. Um, let me see. Uh, I think... Um, but anyway, having, having read the, that part of the book, was, was, I, was, I was just... Uh, I was on the edge of my seat. I'll tell you, it was, it was so exciting. And here, here's a guy back a long, long time ago and, and 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 the book talks about how how did you get from one island to another? There were there were no ships with engines. They, they were they were sailing. Right. So it took a long time for, to go from one island to another. Yeah. I just thought about this young guy trying to earn a living for himself and 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 his family. You know, sailing for three days from one island to another because there was work there. Right. And and that, I mean that is just so impressive. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean I mean I I, I know you're. Incredibly proud of him, but I mean, I, I you are right to be proud of him. I mean, what a what a what a guy! I mean, yeah. I mean, it's just and, and I guess he he was 
not alone in doing that. There were others that were doing that too. Absolutely. Um, people in those days um, from the Dutch Caribbean, they, they would either go to the Netherlands looking for work, uh, and many of them settled there. Um, I still have a lot of family living in the Netherlands uh, because of that legacy. And then uh, some of them went to the United States. Uh, my mother's parents came to this country. They were from St. Martin, and they came to this country. And other people went um, to either the larger islands like the Dominican Republic or Cuba, or they, they went to Aruba and Curaçao because of the refineries. Now, another destination in, in those days was Panama because of the building of the canal. As we know, the Panama Canal was built by um, Afro-Caribbean workers, um, mostly from Jamaica and the Anglophone Caribbean. But my father's paternal grandfather was one of the workers, one of the construction workers on the Panama Canal. So people um, really, I mean, and of course, <laughs> people nowadays are still emigrating because they're looking for work. They're looking for a much better life for themselves and their children. Um, this is the destination of choice for, for many, many, if not most immigrants uh, or, or people who are emigrating from their countries. Um, but Western Europe is another destination and there, there, are, there are several. But um, people up to today still have to leave their countries looking for work. So it's, it's nothing new. But um, people in my, my grandparents' generation and my father's generation um, did that all throughout my family. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's just so impressive to see somebody like your dad and I'm sure many others going to great uh, ex extents to, to find work. Right. Uh, because, you know, everybody has to have uh, some sort of income, some right. sort of employment or yeah. somewhere in order to eat and, and, and to right. survive. And, yes. and uh this is somebody who uh, lived a, I would say, exciting life, but also a tough life. Yes, and, absolutely. And it had to be tough. And, and, and I, think, I think the fact that he had lived such a difficult life, uh, maybe uh, adventurous, but still difficult, yeah. probably helped prepare him for what came next. Yes, I think so. He, he did have an adventurous spirit. He, he was willing to go uh, not only abroad, but... Um, far abroad, you know, he, the merchant ships that he was working on um, went between the Caribbean, North America, and Europe. So he, he traveled really very, very extensively, great distances uh, for work. Yeah, he talked in one, I, you know, one of, the, one of the great things about the book is, you know, this is from an oral history that, that Mary did with her dad. And it wasn't easy for you to um, begin doing that because after he went through um, what he went through in the, in the concentration camp, he uh, for like a lot of uh, vet, World War II vets that I've talked to, and sometimes they don't they won't talk about it at all ever, but or, or if they do, they do it when they're very old. And this is what happened here. We'll get to that later, but I I just wanted to point out that the book, which I recommend to everybody, is just chock full of uh, transcripts of the oral history that Mary did with her father and it's not it's not it's all it's not edited at all it's 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 verbatim and you can tell i mean and and one of the things he talked about was m some of the many ports of call that he went to when he was in the merchant marine and one of the places he went to was a place i've been to called Halifax up in up and that's very cold up there Nova Scotia what an interesting place that is yeah. i mean it's uh, you know i mean there was an incredible fire that took place there I think it was before he got there. I think it was around 1910. Mm -hmm. 
uh, a horrible fire. But but I I I didn't learn about it until after, long after I left Halifax and the time I visited there. But it is an incredible city, yeah. and it's 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 more populous than you might think, and it's on a hill that goes right down to the ocean, hmm. and it is it is just so impressive. But anyway, he talked a little bit in his. Uh, remarks to you, uh, Mary, which were extensive yes. and are extensively reported in the book, and that is one of the things that makes it such a great book. Oh, you. you have the you have the uh, the raw data from your dad, yeah. and you also then you have your commentary on yeah. it, yeah. which is which is, is it's it's a it's a terrific book, folks. Again, it is called an Afro-Caribbean in the Nazi era. I'm not going to repeat the subtitle, but it's by Mary L. Romney uh, Schaub Schaub. Oh, uh, Shab was Mary's husband's name. Mm-hmm. Okay, so she's a hyphenated name, but I think she goes by Mary Romney as well. And and I I call her Mary Romney. Mm-hmm. I don't know her that well, but I'm going to do that anyway because I like that. Good. And and, and it's easier. <laughs> and, and anyway, the the book is amazing, and I I recommend it to everybody. I mean, this is something that, uh, I mean, it, it's adve- it's an adventure. It's an adventure, and it's Thank real, you. and it uh, the oral history that's presented in the book is. Uh, I think I read all of the oral history. I read selectively, and I, I just couldn't I just couldn't miss it. And, and I'm you. I'm trying to picture the old fellow sitting there being recorded by his daughter, and it was it was fantastic. Anyway, he talked a lot about uh, his ports of call yeah. and many ports of call. He'd been all over the place yeah. and about the conditions on the ships, which were not great. Yeah. Another well, hardship he had to endure. Yeah. Well, in terms of the ports of call, um, I think two interesting experiences. One is um, meteorological. <laughs> um, he, he was with other Afro-Caribbean people. And um, of course, being from a tropical environment, they had never seen snow. They had no idea what, what it would look like. So um, they were someplace in North America, I don't remember where, and it started to snow. Uh, one of them was outside, and he came running inside where all of the rest of them were. My father was inside with all of the rest of them. And the one that came in said, fellas, come look. It's raining ice. They, they didn't know what it was. They, and so they all went out to look at this, this incredible precipitation that they had never seen before. And they were, they were shocked. So <laughs> Something we take for granted. Something we take for granted. But something we could do without <laughs> sometimes when it, when it keeps us from getting to work. Right. Or it causes us yeah. to be in somewhat dangerous conditions driving yeah. or, you know, it costs money. Yeah. And another, another experience he had that, that, I, uh, that I describe in the book um, or that I let him describe um, that I quote from, his, from our oral history was um, when he was someplace in the south, I think he said Mobile, Alabama, and, um, of course, in those days, which was the 30s, the 1930s, um, this country was even more segregated than it is today. Segregation, racial segregation was the law. In other words, there were laws that required racial segregation and other laws that uh, permitted it. But uh, racial segregation was a way of life in the United States. But he had come from an environment that was just the opposite. It was very, very culturally and racially and in every way very, very well integrated and very diverse. And um, it was also an environment where black people were in the majority. So he was there in the, in the deep south in the United States in the 1930s um, in an extremely segregated environment which, again, was something that, that those young people at that time 
were too naive and too uninformed to know about. Of course, there was no television in those days. There was barely any radio. Um, newspapers were not international to the extent that they are now. Um, there, was, there was no way, obviously there was no internet, but there was no way for them to understand what that kind of racial segregation was like. So they got on a bus, and as we know, black people um, in the South at least, and maybe other places, were required to sit in the back of the bus. We know from the Rosa Parks story that she rebelled against that, and that's why she was such a civil rights icon. But um, my father and his, his um, his workmates, uh, all of whom were from the, the all of whom were Afro-Caribbean, they were from uh, very integrated islands in, in the Caribbean. They didn't know anything about about racial segregation. They didn't understand the laws. They didn't. They weren't even aware of the laws. So they got on this bus where, of course, black people were supposed to sit in the back. They got on this bus. They paid their fare, and they sat in the front. And when he told me that. I went into shock. I said, what? You sat in the front of the bus? Because I thought that he was going to say that they had been uh, arrested as a result of that, or that they were beaten up as a result of that, or that they were threatened in some way, that their lives were in danger. Because it took less than that, really, for black people's lives to be in great danger um, in, in those days at, at that time and that place. As we know today, you know, th there have been many instances in which we would say, well, how different is it? But it's, it's very different today uh, from what it was in those days. And so they sat on in, in the front of this bus, and the bus driver was, was shocked. He, he couldn't believe it. But he, he could tell that they were foreigners because he could hear the accent, and he could tell by the behaviors. And they were dressed in uh, tropical clothing, so he could see that they were they were not from the area. And, um, you know, he, he told them that they had to, to move to the back, and they couldn't understand why. And um, so I thought that that story was going to end very badly. So I, I, I kept saying, but you sat in the front of the bus? And, oh, I was just, I was horrified. Uh, because it was not an act of defiance. It was an act of naivete, really. And uh, so finally... Um, a local woman, an African-American woman, got on and said, no, you, you have to move to the back because uh, it, it could get all of the rest of us in trouble. And because it's the law here, and this is, this is the way they do things here, so you really need to move. So they, they got up and moved because they didn't want to create trouble for anybody else. But I, I was shocked when he said that, and, and I, was a, a, I was surprised at their reaction. I mean, I thought it showed a lot of courage, actually. Ab absolutely. In fact, one of, one of the things I, I read about that incident in the book, and, and one of the things that, that struck me was that he said to the bus driver, we paid our way on, why can't we sit wherever we want? That's exactly we, what and, he said. And so he was like, you know, he, hey, he was right. He was. And, and, and he, was, yeah. he was asserting his rights, and he did it in a very, uh, you know, cor totally nonviolent way, totally non-aggressive way. And right. it was, it, I was impressed by that. I thought it was really cool the way he did that. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think, you know, this, this gentleman had been in, so many different places by the time he was, you know, a pretty young, still pr a pretty young man. Right, absolutely. I mean, so he, although he probably didn't have, uh, you know, he didn't have the level of a formal education that his daughter eventually attained. Right. But he, d he, d he definitely got his education in a different way. Absolutely. Uh, directly from, from, from 
getting around like he did Absolutely. in the world. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, we're getting to the point where it's we're halfway through. It's a good point to take a break because we're going to start talking pretty soon about what happened to um, his first name was Lionel. Okay, a Lionel Romney. What happened to Lionel Romney, Mary's father, when he got to after the well, the, the sinking of the boat. We we'll, we'll go to the sinking of the boat next. This is Dennis O'Brien. I'm here with Mary Romney and Matt Rupar, our producer. We'll be right back after these messages from our wonderful sponsors. Hey, Dennis O'Brien, back again with Mary Romney, our local author. Local now. She's get, She's been around, too. She was born in New York City. And uh, we're talking a little bit about, we're talking a lot about her dad and his uh, incredibly interesting history, personal history, and about the book that Mary wrote called An Afro-Caribbean in the Nazi Era. And um, the book can be had from Amazon. I have one on order now, and Mary's let me borrow a copy. But anyway, we were talking about his, um, her father Lionel's um, life on, as a merchant marine uh, guy, and he was in it for more than 10 years. Yes. And then what happened? Well, um, as I say, he, he was on a merchant ship, a Greek merchant ship, and it was sailing from Cardiff in Wales on its way to Greece. So, of course, it had to go through the Mediterranean. And when it got to the, the point between Tunisia and Sicily, Tunisia being in North Africa and Sicily being part of Italy, um, it struck a floating mine. A mine is a kind of a bomb. And when it struck the mine, it sank. But a ship from the Italian Navy rescued the crew of my father's ship. And that's the point at which he became a political prisoner in Italy. So he entered the Italian internment camp system um, in 1944. Now, of course, by then, Italy uh, and Germany were allies of each other in World War II. And they were fighting against uh, my father's country, which was the Netherlands and the rest of, of Western Europe, um, Britain, France, uh, Belgium, um, uh, etc. Poland, uh, yeah, uh, sure. They were, uh, and, and the rest of, of Eastern Europe right, as well. Right. That's right. And um, of course, they were fighting against the United States. So, yeah, he was in the Italian camp system uh, for four years before he was um, taken captive to the, the concentration camp uh, run by the Nazis, and that was in Austria. So the sinking of the ship mm -hmm. took place around 1940, 41? It was, it was 1940. It yeah. was June 1940. Yeah, and the war, you know, the war extended pretty much from 1939, I think, right. when the invasion started, right. to 1945. Yes. So he was in confinement, yeah, uh, held, he, uh, held yeah. prisoner by our, uh, our enemies, yes. the enemies of... of, of democracy and the, yes. the Western world pretty yes. much uh, for almost the full extent of the war. Yes, that's right. For most of the war, he, he was in the Italian camp system. And as you know, that system, um, well, the, the Germans took control of that system. And uh, that, that's actually how my father learned to speak German. He already uh, spoke Dutch, which is very similar to German. Dutch is the language of the Netherlands, and uh, my father had Dutch nationality because he was from the Dutch side of St. Martin. So he knew Dutch because he had been to um, he had been going to Dutch medium schools in St. Martin as a child and as a teenager. 
because they used to bring all the teachers over from the Netherlands to teach in the, the colonies. Um, St. Martin was, was one of them, of course. So um, he already knew Dutch. So um, when the Germans took over the Italian camp system, the Italian internment camp system, um, he was forced into interacting with a lot of German soldiers. It was not the SS, it was just the regular army. So um, he had to interact with a lot of um, German soldiers and he understood everything they said because of his knowledge of, of Dutch. But uh, through hearing them and being forced into interacting with them, he was able to learn German and that, that helped him a lot. So he ended up knowing quite a few languages. Yeah, well, he knew English as a, a native language and Dutch as a pretty much a native language. And then um, he was able to learn uh, German because of his, his knowledge of, of Dutch. And then uh, he knew Papiamentu because he had lived in Aruba and Curaçao. And because of his knowledge of those languages, oh no, sorry, he, he learned Spanish because he was able, because he had lived in, in um, Venezuela. And uh, so when he got to Italy, he understood everything because, um, you know, Spanish and Italian have the same root. They're both Latin languages or uh, what are called Romance languages. Exactly. So um, he was able to understand all the Italian he heard. And it was very easy for him to learn to speak it because um, he was in Italy for such a long time, as you say. And then, um, yeah, so th those were his languages, English, Dutch, German, Papiamentu, Spanish and Italian, yeah. So he, I mean, you know, a lot of people say, oh, he must have been really talented, but I, I think that it was less talent than it was the, the virtuous cycle that is created when you start learning languages. I mean, when you, you know, I, I studied um, French for a long time and that helped me a lot when I began to study Spanish. And then um, my, my husband and I started studying Italian uh, when we were, going to Italy f to research the book, and we were able to, to learn it very easily, or the little bit that we studied came very easy to us because of our knowledge of French and Spanish. So, you know, it's not that I'm talented, but I, I, I think once you start learning, once you know one foreign language, the next one becomes easier, and then you, you know three languages, so the, the next one becomes easier. So. Well, I'm sorry, you know. but anybody who reads your book is going to know that you're talented. It's a great book. <laughs> Thank you. It's very you. well put together. It's very... Uh, Thank you. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's spellbinding, and it's just a great book, and I, I hope people will get it from Amazon. Or, Thank you. You know, you're having an event tomorrow. I yes. don't want to forget this now. Yes. You're going to be at the uh, Church of Christ, uh, 335 Stores Road in Mansfield tomorrow, Saturday the uh, 29th of... April at yes. uh, 3 p.m. Yes, yes. It's the Stores Road Church of Christ. And as you say, it's at 335 Stores Road in Mansfield. And um, it's going to be at, at 3 o'clock. I'll be giving a presentation about my father's wartime experience. And that will include some excerpts from the oral history in which you hear him speaking about his wartime experience, his, um, his experience in the concentration camp. Don't want to miss that, folks. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, that's uh, you know, I've read the, uh, I've read most of the transcripts of that uh, world history, and it's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. It's, it's uh, well, it's not, it's believable, but it's amazing. <laughs> anyway, uh, Thank so you. he ended up in, um, traveled in uh, cattle cars, to yeah. uh, to the to the prison, 
in, in, in uh, Austria. Yeah, uh, the, the Germans took all of the prisoners from the Italian camp system and they put them in concentration camps in the areas that they were totally in control of. The reason why the Germans were, were going through uh, Italy was because they were on the retreat. The Allies were beginning to invade Italy and, and, and take control of it. So the Germans were on, uh, on the retreat. So as they, they moved northward through Italy, they took their prisoners with them and they sent them to concentration camps in Germany and Austria and Poland and all of the areas that they controlled. So the Jewish prisoners in the Italian camp system were mostly sent to Auschwitz. Auschwitz was really, I think, mostly intended for the extermination of the Jewish people. But some of the other camps in the, in the, Ital in, in the, um, the Nazi concentration camp system were more uh, diverse. They had more diverse prison populations. Mauthausen had a very, very diverse prison population. The, um, Every country in Europe was represented, and um, um, it, it, it had a, it, it had prisoners from all of the uh, specifically targeted groups, the groups that that the Nazis specifically targeted for extermination. So it was Jewish people, it was um, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, communists handicapped people, LGBTQ, Roma, Sinti, um, criminals, um, who else, let me see, communists and political opponents. And all of those were specifically targeted groups. The Nazis wanted to eradicate all of those groups. I, I, might, be, I might have omitted one. I on think an, the on only one you omitted maybe was the the Austrians who were opposed to well, I said the political. No, I said oh. political opponents. You got yeah, it. All right, yeah. I missed that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I okay, think I said it. <laughs> okay, I might but, not have but, said but, it, but I think know, I did. And, and Roma, of course, are sometimes called gypsies. Yeah, Roma and Sinti are, are two ethnic groups within what what used to be uh, the, the the group of people that used to be referred to as gypsies, but they they themselves object to that. Right. So. Um, they they prefer Roma and Sinti, which again are from I'd India originally. Originally, uh, mo mostly. In any event, okay, there was a, there was a large uh, population of prisoners, diverse population of prisoners at Mauthausen. Some prisoners yeah. were more um, susceptible, let's say, to extermination, because this camp was not it, it was not yes like. Yes and no. I, I I don't I don't know. I mean. Okay. Um, yeah, I I. I, I, I think that they did reserve the worst punishment for the Jewish prisoners. Yeah. That, that's true. That's but what they, I got. But they did um, exterminate. Um, they tried to exterminate all of the prisoners to the greatest extent possible. But, you know, I, yeah. they did what they did in other places. Uh, maybe not as, <laughs> not to the same extent as Auschwitz or Dachau, but, but uh, according to what your, your father said, I mean, there were a lot of people killed there. And you an couldn't tell from day number. to day. I mean, he was living with the constant fear, as, as all the prisoners were, of death on Absolutely. a day-to-day -day basis. Absolutely. He, he was always wondering if he would be the next one to die. Yeah. And um, it, was, uh, it was extremely um, traumatic for him. It had it, to be. Yeah, it caused him a lot of trauma. But, um, yeah, the, the prison population at Mauthausen was, was very diverse. Now... Um, in terms of the punishment, um, 
there were lots of different kinds of, ex of, of, of concentration camps. There were death and extermination camps like Auschwitz, um, but there were also prison camps and um, labor camps and women's camps and um, transit camps. Uh, but there was only one camp that was specifically designated to work its prisoners to death. There was only one death through work camp, and that was Mauthausen. Mm -hmm. Now, the way they wanted to work, or the main way in which they wanted to work the prisoners to death was in the quarry. Um, Mauthausen, the concentration camp, sat on top of the largest granite quarry in Austria. And the Nazis built a concentration camp there because they needed a captive labor force to work the quarry. Um, and the, the, conditions, the, the, the conditions in the quarry themselves were very harsh, but um, the Nazis, um, the, the quarry was very deep. It was um, over 150 feet below the level of the camp, and there was a ledge uh, um, that separated the, 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 the camp from the, the floor of the quarry. So the Nazis would take prisoners and actually throw them over the ledge. And this was one of the most common ways of torturing and killing and intimidating uh, prisoners at Mauthausen. But um, the stairway leading in and out of the, the quarry was also uh, a place where many, many prisoners died because, again, they were starving. And their labor, the, the way that they were supposed to be worked to death, or the main way in which they were supposed to be worked to death, was by carrying the stones from the quarry to the top of the, to, to the, top of the ledge, carrying the stones out of the quarry. And each stone weighed 50 kilos, which as we know is 110 pounds. And again, these people were starving, so a lot of them dropped dead right there on the stairway because their bodies couldn't tolerate the stress of carrying so much weight up 186 steps on the stairway of death. And then even when they didn't die, a lot of them just collapsed from exhaustion. And that, that caused a lot of death because they would fall onto each other. And you know some of the stones would fall onto the prisoners behind them. And it was just, it, it was, it was just, um, really um, the, the most inhumane treatment that they could give the prisoners. And th that, that's what they did. So your dad, uh, you know, in those horrible conditions, was uh, probably as well equipped as anybody to survive that kind of situation because he, has, he was no a stranger to hard work. Right. He was probably in really top-notch condition. He was a male. He was, Strong, right. And, uh, he, and he spoke several languages. Well, he, he, w one thing that saved him, I think two things saved him in, in Mauthausen. One, he was not assigned to work in the quarry. Another was that, he, as you said, he knew all these languages. And the reason why that was a, a saving grace was because prisoners with language skills were often allowed to live longer than other prisoners because they could serve as interpreters. So... Um, the, between those two, those two factors, um, he was able to survive. But if the if the the Nazis had won the war, um, he he wouldn't have been allowed to survive. And there there were times when he thought that that well he he and I remember um, a quote from him um, when I was doing the oral history. I remember him saying that he and one of the other prisoners were talking, and they they said, well you know. 
And it was near it was near the end of of their time there, and and they said, well, you know, the other prisoners said, well, we're not we're not going to be allowed out of here. We're not we're not going. They're not going to let us out because we've seen too much. And I I've been thinking about that for a long time, and I it, it led me to the conclusion that the Nazis were just they were they were like bullies on steroids. They were just extreme bullies. But what you have to remember about bullies is that bullies are cowards. And the Nazis didn't want any of the prisoners, they didn't want to let any of the prisoners out alive. And that's why they killed a lot of prisoners. Every time they had to abandon a camp, they would kill all the prisoners because they didn't want the prisoners to tell the outside world what they had witnessed. So that was why my father and, and the gentleman that he was speaking with thought that they would die in that place because they knew that the Nazis did not want them to tell anybody on the outside world what they had, had witnessed, what they had seen. That, that my, my father's um, co-prisoners said, well, you know, we've seen too much. They're not going to let us out of here. And this was 1944-1945. By that time, it became pretty clear that the Germans were going to lose the war. I think the only reason it continued, I mean, there was an assassination attempt made on Hitler that al almost killed him, a bomb. And uh, there's a movie, great movie about that. I don't know if you've seen it. And um, it's called, uh, oh, the Valkyrie. And, and uh, it, you know, and, and uh, it failed. And, uh, of course, the, the people, the conspirators were all horribly executed. And the, um, you know, word had gotten back, I think, to the uh, prison through other, you know, however, you know, people coming in. Okay, maybe guards, maybe prisoners, new prisoners, or whatever, and 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 you know your dad became aware of the fact that they were they were going to lose the war, so there was always this concern. You know that was great, but there were always this concern that what are they going to do? They're going to scuttle the whole place and kill all the all all, all the, um, the the prisoners. And he mentioned one thing that was kind of strange, and that was that a lot of the guards at that at that prison were World War One veterans, and they were old. And they were they were they had old guns and wow that was so in interesting to know that yeah. you know these people were still loyal to the Reich and they were they were guarding these people and you know and killing a lot of them and yeah. oh, what a horrible thing for an older person to have to do to other people absolutely My God. yes mm. so yeah. so anyway uh, the, the, the along came the I guess it was the third army. It was the Fifth Army. Okay, I thought the book said the Third Army, but you said the Fifth. I think I think it was the Fifth. Okay, anyway, it was Patton. Pat Patton was in charge in, in general of it, and it's a, a pun sort of. And 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 uh, General Patton was, and and they were liberated, and they were liberated, and of course your dad survived along with others, and um, he um, what happened then? Well. Um, I, I know a lot less about what happened to him immediately after the war than I, I do about what happened to him during the war. I asked him several times, you know, exactly what happened between the time he was liberated and the time he left Europe. But that, that is very hazy. He never really answered very specifically. But I know that he made his way to the Netherlands because that was his country of citizenship, and he must have gotten some help there because he... He, he had nothing when he left the camp. He had nothing. He didn't have his passport. I know that um, it was very hard for him to get into the Netherlands. Um, they didn't want to let him in because he, he had no way of proving his Dutch citizenship. He had, right. 
Nothing. No, no passport. Absolutely nothing. So, but they they took him at his word because um, they because I I think because of his fluency in Dutch. I mean, mm. how would he know Dutch if he wasn't Dutch? So, I mean, people. It's not. It's not a common foreign language. It's not like Spanish or English or something. Well, he had. He obviously had special skills. Must have had a terrific personality. He did. Had all these languages. He was yeah. a special person, and uh, yeah. he was able to survive. He was a survivor, and uh, he the was. fact that he survived this uh, horrible, horrible uh, tragedy that you know the whole world faced back in the, but he faced faced it in a very special and more dangerous way was amazing. And and you were able to, uh, after many many years. Uh, induce him to uh, tell about it, tell yeah. you about it, and, and, and record it. Yeah, it was very, very difficult. I tried for over 20 years to get him to talk about it, but I couldn't uh, ask him directly. I couldn't let him know that I knew, uh, so I had to kind of maneuver around it. And uh, so finally I was able to paint him into a corner, and that was the point at which he, he started talking, and I was just uh, really not prepared. I never thought that I would get him to talk about it. But I was very grateful. But it was, it was, as, as you, you know, I think you think it was, you, uh, from what the, from the book, that it was relatively cathartic for him. Yes, it was. To, to finally get that off his chest. Yes. To his daughter. Yes, absolutely. Fantastic. Well, yeah. we're, you know, we could go on for another hour, but we don't have another hour. We have about, what, a minute? Okay. Anyway, we, you've been listening to Mary Romney talk about her dad, Lionel Romney, and his incredible life. And, uh, you know, if you want to hear more, you can show up tomorrow at the uh, Stores Road uh, Church of Christ, 335 Stores Road in Mansfield. Mary Romney will be there at 3 p.m., and she'll tell you the rest of the story. Yes. In any event, uh, thanks, folks, for listening. Thank you, Mary, for being on the show. Thank you. I am, uh, you know, spellbound by your father's story It's and, and uplifted by it. It's an uplifting story. Thank you. Thank you. Know, you know, uh, of a person who uh, was able to... Um, live a very difficult life but to come out of it and 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 build another life in new york city mm-hmm. and, and another place where you know if you they say if you can make it there you can make it anywhere <laughs> but i'd say if you can make it in a german concentration camp you sure as hell can make it anywhere so anyway this is dennis o'brien with mary romney and um thank you all for listening hope you'll be back next week when susan is back here and we'll have another great show with another terrific guest thank you very much And good night.